content warning, discussions of violence, death and torture that some listeners might find upsetting. Welcome to the Newcastle Witches Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is episode 12, Anne Armstrong, Witchfinder General. This episode is dedicated to Jane Copeland. And welcome back to the Newcastle Witches Podcast. Once again, we're joined by Katie Ledane, and we're going to be talking about a very interesting character who goes by the name of Anne Armstrong. Um, first of all, thank you for coming back, Katie, and um, talking about Anne with us. Um, let's just jump right in. Um, and for, you know, for people who might not know this case... Um, Let's start with why are we talking about Anne and why is she relevant to the Newcastle witch trials? So Anne made her accusations about 23 years after the Newcastle witch trials concluded. And um, I'd say that she's relevant because her testimony is much more um, elaborate than the evidence that we have left for the Newcastle witch trials. And it has the potential to shed light on maybe the sorts of beliefs that were happening 23 years earlier. There's lots of uh, little motifs and insights into folk traditions. Um, She definitely had a lot to say, but also um, so did the men that backed her up. And I think that's why it's important to talk about the case today, because of the way that Anna's kind of been done dirty by um, <laughs> historians of the 19th century and it's kind of carried forward today. So shall we start with like just giving people a profile of who Anne was? She was a, a young girl. She was about 14 years old. Yeah, so she lived in Riding Mill, um, in and around Riding Mill at a place called Birtree House and her mistress was called Mabel Fowler. Could you just walk us through... I suppose the accusations, like the testimony that she gave. So the testimony begins with an argument over the price of eggs with a woman called Anne Forster. Um, Anne Armstrong's mistress had sent her to buy eggs from Anne Forster and they argued over the price. And um, Anne wasn't really in a position to pay any more than the money that she'd had sent with her. And... At some point in this argument, Anne Forster sits her down on the ground and um, looks at her head funnily. And um, this is kind of known in witchcraft historiography as fascination to kind of use your eyes to um, perform magic, is what Anne Armstrong interpreted this as. So it kind of starts as a quite small experience and then escalates to include about 31 defendants in the end um so she was a servant girl so she wouldn't have been particularly literate um but the testimony that you're going to and you're going to share like details of it uh why would somebody maybe take a young girl seriously like what was it about that was credible about Anne um And why would people think, like, obviously this person could be telling the truth? Yeah, so I think a lot of the confusion today that comes about from why would people have believed Anne to this extent is through our very different understandings of childhood. 
Um, so the kind of themes of purity and innocence on one hand that we think of um, children with today um, and the, this idea of perhaps a bit more of an imagination to put it <laughs> diplomatically yeah. um, really contrasts with 17th century understandings of childhood and um, spiritual vulnerability so children at the time were understood to be more susceptible to um, either positive or negative spiritual intervention. So you see more accounts of uh, children being visited by angels, like with the um, wonderful news from the North case that mm-hmm. we talked about before. Yeah, That started as an angelic experience. And um, that was partly believed due to it happening to a child. Um, but also there's this kind of exception in um, legal texts for child witnesses in witchcraft cases. So they were understood through this spiritual vulnerability to be especially good witnesses in witchcraft cases. And also I think like something that I also need to, we also need to consider is, um, I mean, the title of this episode, Anne Armstrong, Witchfinder General. Obviously, Witchfinder General is really the title of Matthew Hopkins, the Mm -hmm. very famous witchfinder. But there were other female witchfinders. There were women who would go around accusing people of witchcraft and sort of being in charge of these witch hunts, as it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think they differ crucially to Anne in this case because she... um, I'd say that she was used more as a tool, like she was carried to the different villages to um, detect witches or like confirm or deny pre-existing accusations. Okay. Whereas um, the most famous female witchfinder, Christian Cadell or Christian Coldwell, depending on the record, um, she was an active witchfinder herself, but she was only found out to be a female witchfinder when she was caught and captured. So her authority came from dressing as a man. Oh, okay. Rather than um, being yeah. an out-and-out female witchfinder. She was eventually transported to Barbados for her crimes. Harsh and times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's a similar case of a woman known only as uh, Mr. Patterson as well. But um, it was kind of when she was apprehended that she was found to be yeah. a woman. So Anne is pretty unique in that respect, I mm-hmm. suppose, that she was, her testimony was so relied upon. She was a child, but also a female child. And mm-hmm. she was, she's about to accuse a lot of people of some terrible things. Yeah, and she definitely had um, a kind of different kind of authority to mm-hmm. do so. So this idea of power in an early modern context, you don't really think of an adolescent girl as a symbol of that power. Yeah. Uh, so shall we shall we dive right into what she said and sort of how it came about? So mm-hmm. she went to get some eggs. And then she had the experience with Anne Forster. Um, later on, she came in contact with a man that's known only in the records as the Raggedy Man. Okay. And he warns her of what's going to happen over the next few days. He says that she would be bridled and ridden to the witch's sabbath. Bridling is a fairly common folk motif in English folklore. 
and it's sometimes with the use of an invisible um magical bridle so a sort of harness for horses and is very specific in her language or the way it's recorded she says her spirit was turned into a horse okay so she's kind of sidestepping this idea of physical transformation yeah and a more kind of symbolic um, metaphysical experience so she doesn't like shape-shifted she's like seen her spirit as separate to herself and it's a horse which is going to be essentially harnessed and ridden to the sabbath is this what i'm understanding yeah yeah Oh, okay so um a lot of the experiences the like occasions of uh, being bridled happen to anne at night so there's a theory that this is a kind of um dream or uh, mm-hmm. sleep paralysis experience and she's kind of articulating this in a way that it is still witchcraft but she's she's not so much asking to be believed that she is physically transforming into a horse okay and um just a, a breakdown of the witch's sabbath because that's something that we don't really get in yeah english accounts so it's a, a meeting of witches and a devil or the devil depending on the account um that involves feasting and shape-shifting and dancing things like that but in um continental european accounts it gets a bit darker with um cannibalism infanticide uh sex with the devil Mm -hmm. things like that and in local cases we have some small mentions of those themes before so jane martin yeah and margaret white um talk about carnal knowledge of the devil but we don't really get like this full-scale witch's sabbath until Anne armstrong comes along I'm just intrigued to know why a young girl from Northumberland would have known what a Sabbath is. We're still not in, entirely sure, but there are, are theories that she tapped into folk traditions okay. and stories that did exist and kind of adapted um, more English yeah. traditions to talk about the Sabbath in this way. So this raggedy man warns her. Mm-hmm. Um, he's quite specific in his warnings and again what he says to her taps into much older um, folk traditions that we're not really sure where <laughs> where and why Anne would have got this. So he tells her what she's going to experience and that the witches are going to try to persuade her to join them. Um, he actually says to uh, follow their god and that they will allure her with the tricks that they know and um, that they can get Um, her everything that she desires but he says that she won't be able to tell anyone about these experiences until she goes into a field covers her head with an apron and finds a piece of cheese underneath the apron and eats the piece of cheese okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) um it's a lot on upon first reading but this piece of cheese actually links to a medieval idea of trial by ordeal all oh, right and okay. i'm not sure if we've mentioned this before but the the ducking of witches is mm-hmm. actually connected to medieval ideas of trial by ordeal as well and um they essentially rely on god's intervention to prove the innocence of the yeah. person being tried so because anne was able to eat the cheese and tell her story 
to people around her that would have signified that she was being honest. I mean, just taking a step back though, if she she did meet a a man, a raggedy man, whatever that is code for, and told her those things. I mean, that would be quite frightening. Mm. You're 14 years old, and somebody tells you that that the devil, you're going to be taken to the devil. That's yeah. pretty scary. Especially because the raggedy man seemed to know things about Anne that she'd not told anyone else. Okay. So he knew about her encounter with Anne Forster and how Anne had um, looked her head, is the quote. I mean, that's quite creepy. Definitely, yeah. That he would know those things. Like, I think I would be quite scared and probably be like, oh God, Mm. maybe the devil is coming after me then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so if um, if we believe Anne in this experience, obviously she's going to be frightened and she's she doesn't have the perhaps malevolent motives that um 19th century historians put on her yeah because i would be scared if somebody said oh i know you've done that Mm -hmm. so i would go and tell somebody yeah exactly (laughs) and perhaps Anne only intended to report the encounter with Anne forster and the raggedy man but she tapped into pre-existing accusations with everyone else right okay what accusations were they and where did it how did it escalate then from from that encounter so the raggedy man told Anne that Anne Forster would be the first to bridle her and ride her to the witch's sabbath and um according to Anne that is what happened a few days later but she also saw several other local women at the Witch's Sabbath and could name them afterwards and um, what they'd confessed to, to the devil as well. So as well as the feasting and shape-shifting at Sabbath, there was a form of inverted um, Catholic confession. So rather than um, confessing your sins and um, being absolved and doing penance mm-hmm. and things like that, they'd confess their sins to the devil and he would reward them. Right, Okay. Um, so you hear details of what local women had reportedly confessed to mm-hmm. and they like tapped into local fears that were already there. So things like laming cattle, making children sick and things yeah. like that. So quite like what we've discussed earlier in the podcast, typical accusations of what would be a witch. Mm-hmm. This is what Anne Armstrong claimed to have heard. Yeah, and I think in a way that's why her claims took off because um in a lot of english accounts there's not really a concern um with the witch's sabbath and with this kind of large-scale conspiracy of witches it Mm -hmm. does come down to more direct acts of harm by magic so by including this inversion of confession in the sabbath and is fusing atypical and more typical english witchcraft beliefs uh, so what is the what are the repercussions for people or for Anne from this when this testimony? So we do see some arrests and some um deaths in jail. I think the the Ainsley couple, um Michael and Margaret Ainsley die in jail. Um but again from the the core accusations from Anne Forster and the women around her, we see that expand across several villages mm-hmm. um, in, in Northumberland. So how many Sabbaths did 
is it more than one um, time that Anne Armstrong witnessed things, or is it just this one occasion, and it was that was enough to put people in jail? So, Sabbath wise, Anne says that they went on for six consecutive nights. So there's a kind of week, yeah, um, of activity, but that then um, expands further into the men that backed up Anne's claims. Okay. So John March also describes a witch's Sabbath as happening in his house. And he says that there was great lightning happening in his house and um, creatures in the resemblance of cats climbing up the walls. He says that he hears an Armstrong being made to sing for the witches while they're dancing and then catches her as she falls down dead. And we see again like this um, importance of evidence because he, he does go to check if Anne is okay but then brings in um, several servants in the area to bear witness to what's going on. Oh, wow. Okay. So it just gets more complicated with the testimony of the men Mm -hmm. coming in. Um, So who are the men? What do they say? And how does that sort of help Anne Armstrong's case, as it were? The men are George Taylor, um, John March, and Robert Johnson. They're... Uh, local men that um, hear of Anne and her building profile as someone that is able to detect witches as a sort of elevated witness, I suppose, mm-hmm. rather than a witch finder, as we like, think of Matthew Hopkins today. And um, George Taylor claims that his cattle were lamed and that Anne Armstrong was able to confirm his suspicions without having met her before. Um, he shows up to Anne Armstrong's father's house and Anne knows who he is before oh, wow. being introduced. Um, again, like George's accounts really show us the, the anxieties of the time. He's compares, comparing his livestock and um, his possessions to his neighbours and um, sees witchcraft as the reason for why... Um, they're not living up to his expectations, I suppose. The quote is, and he thinks that all his goods do not thrive, nor are like his neighbour's goods, notwithstanding he feeds them as well as he can, but they are like anatomies. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so they were, his cattle were probably starving, and he was like, why, why? <clears throat> right, okay. But yeah, like he's keen to like line up the details and say that Anne, Anne didn't know him beforehand, but is able to confirm all of these things Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily on a whim that a lot of these things were kind of reported as in the 19th century yeah so a lot of it is described as um everyone being drawn in by this um neurotic or hysterical little girl yeah but if we actually look at the testimonies we can see that there is an attempt to verify her claims so what are the other testimonies that come forward that maybe then reinforce or back up Anne's claims? So uh, Robert Johnson was a servant to John March, um, according to the testimony. And his claims are a bit more fantastical than George Taylor. So 
he says that he woke up to the sounds of a whole army in the other side of his bedroom in the middle of the night. That there was a knock on the door he, and he went up and pressed his ear against the window and it sounded like a whole army of men were marching at his door to come in. Oh, wow. Okay. But then he opened the door and there was no one there. Um, he says that he had his mill destroyed, had his master's horse die, and even performed an autopsy to try and find the cause of the horse's death. Okay. So, again, we do see, like, this attempt to find evidence or to find other explanations Yeah. for why this is happening. But if you've got an Armstrong being carted around the local villages with claims of witchcraft, mm-hmm. we can start to understand why all of these events become tied to the same. Yeah. I mean, side note, horses are actually very delicate creatures and can mm. get sick from a stomach upset and be dead within 24 hours. So maybe that's what happened to his horse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but again, like all of these experiences are being tied together. So perhaps yeah. something that wouldn't have been seen as a supernatural encounter gets lumped in with yeah. with the... Um, spectral army appearing outside of his door exactly yeah it it gets it's sort of like this again like going back to the newcastle witch trials lots of things are happening and you're like there must be another explanation for this Mm -hmm. oh there's somebody saying there's witches in the area yeah and that leads to even more testimony (laughs) yeah definitely so the the horse that robert johnson um ripped apart belonged to john march who we mentioned earlier okay and John March's testimony combined with Robert Johnson's kind of works to challenge one of the understandings of Anne Armstrong's accusations. Okay. So with the cases um, relating to Anne occurring so late into the timeline of English witchcraft, um, with it having peaked in around the 1640s or so, mm-hmm. um, the cases in cases like it, are explained away through the geographical and political isolation of the accusers. But um, John March mentions that he was making a regular trip to Newcastle, a huge economic centre. Yeah, it was massive, wasn't it? At the Mm. time, like, Newcastle was really at the beginning of... Well, it still had the coal trade, didn't it? And, you know, it wasn't sort of a small island off the coast of wherever, you know. It no, had... definitely not, yeah. So it was connected to both London yeah. and Edinburgh. And it's like this big nexus point. And although the Anne Armstrong accusations happen in rural Northumberland, little details in the testimony show us that the villages weren't as isolated as we might see well, them today. Yeah, certainly. I mean, like, Riding Mill isn't that far away from Newcastle, is it? No, no. And there would have been trade back and forth i mean there were mines and the coal roads and wagonways yeah, yeah. things we do have evidence of them being in use for decades like yeah. the 1670s certain coal roads yeah so it would have been so. a lot of activity back and forth between the big cities and the smaller villages yeah yeah so john march describes a smaller version of this when he's traveling back from newcastle and a swallow appears um and starts flying around the grey mare that eventually gets sick and dies. Okay. And he tries to swat the swallow away, but um, it's circling and circling the mare. And um, he argues that this was a witch transformed into oh, okay. the swallow, and that's what made the mare sick. Right. So, <laughs> so 
again, like John March's testimony is a, a combination of this more abstract idea of the Sabbath and more familiar English witchcraft motifs of like direct harm by magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, shall we go back to the Sabbath for a bit and understand a bit more about what was happening in that what would have maybe convinced people that these things like Anne Armstrong was seeing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else would have happened in the Sabbath? So it's like in my mind, they're like quite big occasions, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> if we can use that word. <laughs> yeah, they, I, they'd definitely be a lavish feast. A yeah. feast, sorry. The um, devil is described as sitting on a gold throne at the head of a long um, banquet table. Mm-hmm. And the witches present wish for the food items that they want and pull a rope attached to the rafters. And when they pull the rope, the food appeared. I mean, that sounds all right. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from, you know, the devil's there, but that'd be nice. Like, oh, I want pheasant. Yeah. um, And pheasant is a good example, actually, because one of the attempts to explain why Anne was making these claims is because a a lot of the foods mentioned at the Sabbath were very rich and um, kind of out of out of bounds for a servant girl okay um so there's like various cheeses that we mentioned before um sack which is a type of wine and um a, a crucial one that was very interesting to get into the rabbit hole of understanding what this might mean was um, Capon. Okay. Um, and I don't think this is a thing that we're familiar with today. It's, a, it's I think I know what a Capon is, yeah. Yeah, so it's a um, castrated it's, it's rooster. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a castrated... It's not a hen. I was trying to like, where's the word? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a rooster, but it's not a rooster. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a castrated rooster, and apparently the process was done to um, to calm the rooster yeah. hormonally, but also it apparently made the flesh more tender as well. So it was understood as somewhat of a, a delicacy mm-hmm. in a way, but um, the removal of the testicles is going to <laughs> tap into wider gender politics at the time. Okay. So... The symbology of the the capon or capon actually links to the cuckold, the man who develops horns when his wife has been adulterous. Mm-hmm. Links to this idea of like social inversion, and um, the upheaval of patriarchy. Oh wow! So... All that from a meal from mm. this bird that's been presented. Yeah, um, okay. because. This is partially because it would often be the farmer's wife that would remove the testicles of, of the rooster. Okay. As well. So um, that kind of ties into, again, emasculation and yeah. this conspiracy of witches. Of course, because witches were trying to overthrow the patriarchy. To a certain extent, <laughs> it depends who you're, who you're asking. Um, interesting that the... Um, the leaders of the coveys that Anne talks about were all male and there were male witches involved. But this tie to like the symbology of uh, destruction of patriarchy is very interesting and that Anne 
either knew or was told to tap into. Who would have told her? I guess this is what's really interesting to me. Is like, you know, maybe she isn't as, you know, when we say a simple servant girl, maybe she isn't simple. Or was she actually being coached? Or were there other forces at play here to implicate these families, these people? As I said before, Anne was able to tap into pre-existing suspicions and accusations in a similar way to the Newcastle Witchfinder mm-hmm. being able to do that before. Um, neither of them kind of just showed up and sparked a witch trial around them. But there there are theories that um, Anne Armstrong was perhaps being coached. We will never really know by who. Yeah. Um, but with certain details that she mentions, it does tap into political upheaval from like the decades previously. Mm-hmm. So each leader of the covey that she discusses um, was referred to as Protector, which is the same title given to Oliver Cromwell during the Civil War period. Oh, wow. So all of these kind of seemingly innocuous details tap into... Um, larger political and social conflicts so that's where we start to think that maybe Anne wasn't completely yeah it just sounds a lot more complicated and there's a lot more beneath the surface than Mm -hmm. I I was my spirit was brought to a sabbath and I saw witches it says like there's a lot more to unpick so who else was involved in this conspiracy who else was being a witch I guess to bring us again to John March's Sabbath um, people hear that he is harbouring Anne Armstrong and that they're making um, that she is making accusations against uh, against them essentially and one of the people that hears about this is Mary Hunter she's, men- um, she's mentioned kind of near the beginning of Anne's claims. But she and her son show up at John March's house to confront Anne Armstrong for for the accusations that she's yeah. about to make in court. And Anton Hunter, the son, actually threatens Anne and she refuses to go into detail about the accusations that she's making until she's in the safety of the court setting. Oh, wow. So we see some um, witness intimidation yeah. in a way but it's a kind of strange power dynamic that we don't really see in a 17th century context or how we would understand the 17th century today because it's the 14 year old girl that holds the power over the adult man mm-hmm. leading up to the trial she's intimidated but she's going to go into the courthouse she's going to give her testimony do we know much of what happens within that within the in the court case or in in the trial other than she says you know she tells all um sort of how does that pan out so we see a kind of escalation of her testimony it gets more elaborate over a few months okay um but also the way that Anne signs off her testimony is quite interesting as well um because as far as we know, Anne was illiterate, mm-hmm. and so we don't get an elaborate signature on it or anything like that. But towards the end of her testimony, she starts um, signing it at the end, 
with um, a circle. Okay. And this is kind of interpreted as seeing her input strengthen throughout the case. And by looking at the actual records rather than any transcribed um, later editions of it, her input is more prominent, but also it gets very frustrating at the end of the case. So um, there's no there's no kind of clear outcome that we we know of, and the oh, right. the records just end with the phrase "and further saith not." That's okay. <laughs> that's it. We get "and further saith not." We don't really know what happens to many of the defendants or to Anne afterwards, but that hasn't really stopped theories in the meantime. I mean, could it be that people? had learned from the Newcastle witch trials, and they're like, not this again, we're not going to kill people, had sort of the superstition moved on, sort of with the legal... Because they would have been tried in, I suppose, in um, a secular court. Mm -hmm. And would those courts be like, no, we've moved on from witchcraft. It could be a thing, but it isn't a crime. Is that a plausible theory? So um, this is still before the... Uh, repeal of the 1604 Witchcraft Act. Okay. So there's still the legal framework there to prosecute witches. Okay. Um, but we don't really see this happen and in this case, definitely. And that's kind of explained away through um, the kind of central government being in place that wasn't in place during the Civil War period. Yeah, okay. But locally, we do see some of the same officials involved in Anne Armstrong's accusations as were involved in the Newcastle Witch Trials of 1650. Okay. So there is the scope of a reluctance to go through the Newcastle Witch Trials again, especially yeah. with the witch finder being exposed as a fraud. Mm-hmm. So there, there is the idea of not wanting to be taken in again, especially yeah. when it is the, the possibility of 31 executions. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to affect a lot of people um, in the local communities around it, um, mm-hmm. around the central case as well. So, again, it is a high-stakes yeah. scenario. It's not this kind of whim that exactly um, witchcraft gets boiled down to in popular understandings today. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that we can link the, the Newcastle case, case as being within living memory and as an explanation for why Anne Armstrong's accusations didn't go any further. Sort of what happened to Anne afterwards? So Anne disappears from records. There are various other Anne Armstrongs that pop up in records. Um, There's some um, records of marriage and burial. Mm. Those would be the most obvious ones, I suppose. Definitely, yeah. yeah, but it's hard to pin down is this the Anne yeah. Okay. And what does pop up in the in popular legend is on a display board in the pub that stands um on the grounds of the inn that the Witches Sabbath was said to have taken place at. And it says that um wax was melted and poured over Anne's body by the accused witches. 
and then remelted and poured down her throat. And the, the pub display board really confidently asserts this was the recorded punishment for a snitch, I suppose. Oh, my goodness. But if you try and research that as a recorded yeah. punishment, it kind of dematerialises very quickly. Yeah. Um, I think the same account, the same display board mentions that she might have been hanged by the witches in the cellar. Um, there's reported ghost sightings in no- local newspapers or that she might have committed suicide. It, you know, it's only way. just dawned on me now that we're talking about it. Like, what what happened? Like, there weren't any prosecutions. There would have been some kind of retribution, whether it was benign and sort of like, she's the outcast, nobody likes her, she'll mm. accuse you of being a witch, don't go near her, to, yeah, full-on murder. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I think that... That people thinking that there must have been some sort of retribution, there must have been yeah. some sort of um, consequence for Anne, is has is what has led to these kind of confidently asserted outcomes because yeah. there isn't a kind of satisfying conclusion to the story. I'm going to go with the optimistic one and say that she ran away and I found think, a better life. I think she would have had to have moved. Yeah, there's no <laughs> carrying on day to day life. Exactly. After this, looking your neighbours in the eye when you've said yeah. that you saw them at the witch's Sabbath. Yeah. Golly, yeah, poor girl. She would have definitely had to... Yeah, you can't hang around after that, can you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it'd be more than a little bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope, I hope Anne, I hope you, you fled and found a better life. That's mm-hmm. what I, I hope for Anne. So do I, but I think... It's kind of it starts to get really unfair when the injustice that she faced continues into the nineteenth century. Mm. So when people start talking about the case again, all of the blame is focused on Anne. We sort of lose trace of John March, George Taylor, and Robert Johnson, and the spectre of anybody who might have been, as you say, like coaching her mm-hmm. and giving her more information. Yeah, so all of those figures kind of fade into the background mm-hmm. and we get Anne being described as um, playing the part of Matthew Hopkins. Yeah. And um, into the early 20th century, Cecil Lestrange Ewan, um, a prominent witchcraft historian, described her as a neurotic wench. Oh, wow. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, firmly places the blame on Anne Armstrong being neurotic and hysterical um not to minimize obviously what she was doing because she could have as you said resulted in in the murder of 31 people for witchcraft um but equally i can't get over the fact that she was such a young girl and she obviously at the very beginning had a very frightening experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i can't like i i the the idea of like somebody coming up to you and telling you that you know you were hunted hunted by witches that would have been frightening and maybe that sort of would spur it on and the spectre of somebody coaching her and saying you know say this describe this you know make it b- a better story mm-hmm. um you can't help but feel a bit sorry for her and have yeah. a bit of compassion towards her definitely it it's kind of hard to on the surface it's hard to say that like i sympathize with someone that accused 31 yeah. people of witchcraft but Given those circumstances and with the very real possibility of 
genuine belief, mm-hmm. it's it's becomes less hard to recognise the injustice yeah. done to Anne herself and the consequences that she might have faced. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's kind of continued exactly yeah. um, throughout history to where we are in the present. Especially because she stands in such stark contrast to the Newcastle Witchfinder. Yeah. So with him, there's this, this clear financial motive. But with Anne... We don't really get that at all. Mm-hmm. No, ab- absolutely. I think she's a fascinating character. Um, and having gone through this journey of like understanding the Newcastle witch trials and then coming to this case, um, it's been very interesting to unpick. Um, so as always, I really appreciate you coming along and sharing all this knowledge. Um, and... I'm sure if anyone stopped Katie in the street and asked them, can I learn more? I I feel like you'd be happy to oblige because there's a lot to say about Anne Armstrong. So thank you. (laughs) Once I get started, it gets difficult to stop. (laughs) So thank you for coming back Mm -hmm. and thank you everybody for listening. You've been listening to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for joining us. We will be back again soon with a new episode, They Live Among Us. In the meantime, you can find us on social media, under the Newcastle Witches podcast.